Good afternoon, and welcome to the Narrow Path radio broadcast. My name is Steve Gregg, and we are live for an hour each weekday afternoon, taking your phone calls. If you have questions about the Bible or the Christian faith, we'd be glad to hear from you. You can call, bring those up. We'll talk about them. If you have a difference of opinion from the host, maybe challenges, uh, uh, you don't believe in the Bible, don't believe in Christianity, want to talk about that, well, we'd be glad to talk to you about that. Feel free to give me a call. We have a couple of lines open right now. And the number to call is 844-484-5737. That's 844-484-5737. You know, I'm in, uh, I'm in Sacramento today uh, broadcasting from the studios at K- KFIA because uh, this weekend and uh, a couple days before and after, there are some events in the area I'm speaking at. All week I've been talking about them, and, and someone just told me last night that I've been uh, on a, a couple of different programs. I've said I'm speaking on the Central Coast. I intended to say the Central Valley of California, I, and I, I was so embarrassed to hear that I've been saying the Central Coast because that's totally a different area. Um, I used to live on the Central Coast of California, and that's, that term was familiar to me, but uh, we're inland here. We're not anywhere near the coast. We're, I'm speaking in the Sacramento area, the Fresno area, and... Um, and uh, last night I was in Clovis, uh, tonight and tomorrow I'm speaking in Roseville, and uh, and then there's some events taking place in Oakhurst and Fresno and and Clovis again and Auburn. Uh, if you live in any of those areas and are interested in any of those events, uh, feel free to go to our website, thenarrowpath.com, and look under announcements, and you'll see the time and place of all of those events. I will say this, uh, on Sunday afternoon, one of those events is in Fresno, and it's at the North Point Church in Fresno, uh, and I mention it because uh, they've asked me to speak on the four views of Revelation, and that's something they want people to register for. Uh, it doesn't cost anything, uh, at least I'm pretty sure it doesn't, but uh, they would like to know how many people to expect. So if you want to come on Sunday afternoon to uh, my lectures on the four views of Revelation, uh, you'll want to get in touch with North Point Church and register. All the, that information is at our website. If you're interested in any of these meetings, go to thenarrowpath.com and look under announcements. And uh, let's see, that's all That's all I have to say before we go to the phone lines, and we'll talk to uh, Brandon from Edmonds, Washington. Hi, Brandon. Welcome. Hi, Steve. Thanks for having me. My question is about 2 Kings chapter 19, uh, verse 12, where it talks about and I was wondering if we have information about who is being represented, as I imagine there are no people of it at that point. Now, I have to say, your um, your voice cut out a few times. I don't know if that was oh, your phone or if it's, a, if, if it's my connection somehow, but I, I, I missed some of it. You said uh, okay, First Kings? Well, yeah, one more time. Second Kings 19.12, where it talks uh-huh. about the children of Eden, and okay. I wasn't quite sure who those people were. Yeah. Uh, I, I don't know who they are either. There's a lot of uh, ancient cities uh, that are mentioned in the Bible, many of which even scholars don't know where they were anymore. Some of them have been excavated, some have not. Uh, we're talking about things that happened over 2,000 years ago, and lots of right. the ancient cities have been covered over. Now, it's not, it's, if you're wondering, it's not talking about the Garden of Eden, uh, if that's okay. the question. You know, the children that of is. Eden, 
Yeah, it's not it's not referring to children who were uh, from the Garden of Eden, but Eden was the name of a, a city or a town, okay, or a village. You know, we don't know exactly sure. what it was because it uh, it's it's so ancient and we don't have no one has excavated it yet. But yeah, you, uh, I'm sure that the question was, does this have anything to do with the Garden of Eden? And I'm exactly. sure exactly. Yeah. No, okay. So. Thanks a lot, Steve. I appreciate it. Have a good show. Okay, Brandon. Thanks for your call. Good talking yeah. to you. Okay, Michael from Inglewood, California. Welcome to The Narrow Path. Thanks for calling. Yes, hello, Steve. Um, good to speak to you again. I was reading Acts 19, and basically they were, ta- I forget who, but they were talking about Paul preaching, I believe, in Ephesus, and robbing the um, robbing Artemis of her prestige. So I kind of thought to myself, how can you rob a god? And then that made me think of, of course, Malachi 3. Is there any correlation between those two statements? No. Artemis, of course, is uh, the goddess, uh, the patron goddess of Ephesus. She was also known as Diana. And um, the people of Ephesus had a big stone. Uh, Scholars suspect it was probably a meteorite that fell there. And the... the, uh, superstitious Ephesians thought that was a statue of their goddess Artemis and so she was highly revered in that town although they believed in many gods and goddesses in those days I mean the non-Christians did the pagans did yet uh, she was like the main goddess of Ephesus and so when Paul began to be successful in winning people to Christ in Ephesus of course when people become Christians they stop worshiping idols and uh, the people who are complaining about it in Acts 19 are the silversmiths as the guys who make silver statues of Artemis for sale for sort of a tourist industry. And um, but so many people were becoming Christians that they weren't the least bit interested in buying these idols of Artemis. And so the the idol makers were frustrated. Uh, You know, Paul was hurting them commercially. And when he said that, you know, our our goddess Artemis is in danger of, you know, losing esteem or losing respect or uh, you said she's being robbed of respect i'm i have to say i'm not sure which verse you're looking at there but i know the story um what verse are you looking at i believe that was nine um 19 and 20 19 verse 20 uh now it says there the word of god of the lord prevailed it'd be after that at some point but when is it when uh alexander is speaking i'm trying to uh, find it here uh, All right, but okay. I should have had it. Uh, okay, yeah, in verse 27, they're saying, uh, so not only is this trade of ours in danger of falling into disrepute, but also the temple of the great goddess Diana may be despised and her magnificence destroyed, whom Asia and the world worship. Maybe you're using a different uh, translation that said right. maybe her honor yes, is being, she's being robbed of her honor or something like that. Yeah, there, there's no suggestion there that, that the temple of Diana was being literally robbed. But if people stopped being patrons of, the, of that religion, then, of course, it would suffer just like any institution does when they lose their customers. Uh, so that's, that was the concern. It was not about uh, literally robbing Artemis of anything that she possessed. It was rather depriving her of the respect that that city was accustomed to giving her. Okay, and so yeah, it was the NLT version. But in, in Malachi three, are they? What kind of robbing are they talking about? Well, that's I mean, talking tithes about, and offering. That, yes. 
Right. The, the, the tithes, the tenth, the tenth of the income of the Israelites was to be given to the Levites. And the Levites were the full-time workers at the, at the temple and in the religious system of the Jews. Uh, and therefore, their support came from these tithes. Just like many ministers today, uh, or missionaries or whatever, uh, they are supported by gifts or by, you know, by, by what the people who are benefiting from their ministry supply. And, um, and this was true in the case of the Levites. So if the Levites couldn't eat, uh, they couldn't work. And if they couldn't work, then the temple would not be serviced properly. And where if the temple service was neglected, then God himself is not being worshipped properly. So the idea was that by people neglecting to pay their tithes, which was commanded in the law of Moses for them to pay, um, they were they were wrongfully. It's like it's like withholding your income taxes or something, because that's what tithe was. Tithe was really a tax. It was a temple tax of sorts uh, or a Le- Levitical tax that was on the people. So if the people didn't pay their tithes, uh, it's like they're tax evaders in a way. And uh, it's, they're robbing the ones who are supposed to be benefiting from that income. So that's that's what Malachi chapter 3 and verse 10 is talking about, is about the need to not rob God by withholding what is owed for the support of the temple. Okay. Thanks very much. Okay. Uh, Michael, good talking to you. Uh, let's see. David from California, welcome to the Narrow Path. Hey, Steve. Good to talk to you. Yeah. Um, came up in conversation a few days ago about uh, Ruth being a Moabite and no Moabites being allowed into the assembly. I think it's in Deuteronomy that says that. Uh, I read a few different opinions. I would say they're opinions. I just wanted to get your take on that. Uh, probably three, four, five different things I heard excusing that and how she's in the lineage of the Messiah. And of David. Yeah, the, uh, the the more important is she's in the lineage of David because he was only uh, two or three generations removed from her. And in uh, in the law, God said that uh, no Moabite shall come into the congregation unto the tenth generation. Now, I'm not sure if that means the tenth generation from Moses' time, like from, from, you know, from now until ten generations, I don't let any Moabites in, or if it meant that anyone who had a Moabite in their ancestry as near as 10 generations back, uh, was to be not allowed in. That's, uh, the, the very command itself is not unambiguous and could be taken more than one way. That's probably why you get different answers. Um, if it meant that the, uh, the Moabites, uh, from, for 10 generations from the time that this command was given in Moses' time, uh, should not be allowed in the congregation, well, then Ruth was probably at least 10 generations away from Moses. I'm not sure. We don't know that she was you know, at the end of the period of the judges, or I should say near the end. And the period of the judges was probably close to 400 years, So, uh, and that was after Moses' time. So it's a good chance that the Moabites of her day were beyond the range of that curse. Now, if a Moabite shall not enter until the, uh, until the 10th generation, if that meant if you have any ancestors in the past 10 generations who are Moabites, then you won't be let in. Well, that wouldn't make too much sense because... Uh, that would be true if, if they were 15 generations back, too, because, you know, the people, your, your ancestors five generations back would be within the 10 range and so forth and, and, and would be Moabites themselves. I mean, everyone who's descended from Moabites 
is Moabite. And so for every generation, that would that keep them out. Now, I personally think it probably had to do with the first meaning and that Ruth may well have lay outside, or, or at least David lay outside of that thing. They, they, Ruth was a Moabite, but she was the grandmother of David or great-grandmother of David. I'm trying to remember now. But she was not too far removed from David. And uh, so it would seem that David himself would have been forbidden to uh, enter the congregation if you couldn't be within 10 generations of a Moabite because his great-grandmother was closer than that. On the other hand, David got a lot of exemptions from the law. I mean, David ate the showbread when only the priests were supposed to do that. David got forgiven for his sins of Bathsheba when that didn't happen. You know, that kind of forgiveness wasn't generally offered through the law. Um, David even said in a couple of his psalms, Psalm 40 and Psalm 51, that God didn't, he says, sacrifice an offering you did not require uh, or else I would bring it. Well, I mean, certainly the law did require sacrifice and offerings, but David, who lived under the law, uh, he had, a, I think, a, a, a higher revelation of the kind of things that mattered to God. And so... Many times the ceremonial issues of the law, David was a little, a little negligent about. And, um, and Jesus seemed to think that was okay because he mentioned David eating the showbread in Matthew chapter 12 uh, because Jesus' disciples were being accused of breaking the Sabbath. And he said, well, didn't you hear that David broke the law when he ate the showbread? Uh, and, and he was you know, basically Jesus saying and that it was okay, even though it was against the law. So I think when it comes to ceremonial laws, David kind of understood the ceremonial laws are not really what's on God's heart. He does, he does, these are kind of regular things for people to do, but God is willing to make exceptions about that, where he's not, not willing to make exceptions about moral laws. And, uh, of course, although you can be forgiven, and, that, and David was forgiven for violation of moral laws. But uh, I think that David's uh, being within 10 generations of a Moabite probably put him outside the, um, the, the range of that curse on the Moabites, so I don't think it was an issue. Do you understand what I'm saying about that? Yeah, and my pastor, one of my pastors, brought that up, and I thought that was a good point. But then I, I don't know if it was a translation I was reading. I thought the word, I know 10 generations is in there. I thought the word forever was somewhere in that law as well. Or am I thinking of the wrong one? I don't have it in front of me because I... Well, you know, sometimes, actually, sometimes the word forever, which in the Hebrew is olam, and uh, it, it is used in parallel with the expression many generations. Uh, there are some of the Psalms that, you know, where the lines parallel each other, where it'll say, this is so forever, even for many generations. The word olam, although it's translated forever and, and eternal, uh, in the Old Testament English versions, very many times, it actually doesn't mean forever. It actually means uh, beyond the vanishing point. In other words, beyond the horizon. This, as you look for the end of this, you can't see the end of it because it's over the horizon. And uh, the word olam actually comes from the Hebrew word that means hidden. And it, it speaks of things that are hidden, that is the end is hidden from our view. It doesn't mean they never have an end, but we can't see it from here is basically what olam means. And therefore... We have to be careful, and I think our English translators have sometimes done us a disservice by using the English words everlasting or forever when they're translating Olam, because most of the time it doesn't mean that, or at least a lot of times it doesn't. Now, it can refer to something that is endless, like God. He's called the, the everlasting God. That's Olam also. Of course, God is endless, but the word Olam itself doesn't necessarily convey the idea of endless. 
and many things in the Old Testament are said to be olam, which are not around anymore, uh, including the everlasting doors, uh, olamic doors of Jerusalem mentioned in Scripture. And, and, uh, and there's lots of things that are said to be olam, but they're not around anymore. Even, even circumcision was supposed to be olam forever, and yet we don't, we don't believe it's a mandate now. So um, to, to say forever in a passage that's talking about ten generations would not be very unusual uh, it's just that it's a mistake to translate that as forever. It should mean for the foreseeable future is really what it means. Thank you very much, Steve. I'll take my uh, my uh, concordance. I'll look into all that, study it up, and I appreciate your answer. It's great. All right. All right. God bless you. All right. You too. Thank you. Good to talk to you. All right. Our next caller is Greg from Fort Worth, Texas. Greg, welcome to The Narrow Path. Thanks for calling. Hi, Steve. I just want to say I appreciate your show. Thank you. And I uh, do learn a lot from it. And your call screener up in Portland is amazing. Oh, Very nice about, person. Actually, we have different call screeners on some days. But, yes, yeah, Sam is doing it today, and he's, he's good. Okay. I'm saying the yeah. others are not. That's right. He's super nice. Yeah. Anyway, I wanted to uh, talk to you. I, I can't catch every show. but um, What? You can't well, catch every show? Well, depart That's from right. me. No. Okay, go ahead. <laughs> I do have I do have a life to live, and sometimes I'm not in the truck. But anyway, yeah. I heard a couple of callers calling about the Earth, and uh, I know with every fiber of my being that the Earth is a flat plane and it's perfectly still, just like our senses confirm. And I wanted to know how we could possibly justify what they say the heliocentric model is doing right now. And I wanted to know if you knew that they say that the ball Earth is spinning on its axis at 1,040 miles an hour and going about 67,000 miles an hour around this giant sun and chasing the sun through space at 500,000 miles an hour, which is 12 million miles a day, and then the universe expanding at the speed of light. How can we uh, defend the faith that God created the creation when it's these crazy speeds that we don't experience and they haven't shown us a scientific test to prove, uh, and God's scripture says the earth is fixed in place, that it cannot be moved except for earthquakes, I'm wondering how in the world we can justify what they're teaching us and telling us to believe against our own reality. Well, our own reality is, uh, our, our own perception is limited to the, the little square of ground that we're on. Uh, the Earth is a very large uh, object. Now, I don't believe the Earth is yes. flat. I have a lot of listeners I know who've called who do believe the Earth is flat, but I don't believe it's flat. Um, I believe that um, the, the way they know that the Earth is spinning at 1,000 miles per hour at the uh, equator is the Earth is about 24,000 uh, miles around uh, the circumference, and uh, the sun ends up in the same place every 24 hours. So, it's it must be going a thousand miles an hour, but that's I mean, and the other, you know, the other distances. I have to admit, I don't know how they measured them, but that's not my field. I'm not I'm not an astronomer, but uh, I don't have any problem believing that those things are true. I think the people who are the most knowledgeable scientists, including Bible believers, believe those things without any question. Now you might say, well, they should question, and, and of course, that's right. we, we should question. We should question everything. Yeah, yeah we should qu we should make sure we're not passing on information that's not well founded. But uh, it doesn't require an unbeliever who is a scientist to believe that the Earth is round and spinning at those speeds. So 
uh, I would say, you know, if you ask me, how do people know, you know, that there are atoms? I'm not really sure because no one's ever actually seen an atom, but but they have ways they've tested to, you know, they know about electrons, they know about atoms, they know about quarks. How do they know? I don't know. I don't know, but I don't have any reason to doubt them. Now, it wouldn't make any difference in my life if the Earth was flat or round. Uh, it has absolutely no bearing on my life, nor does it have any bearing on the Bible, since the Bible does not actually teach that the Earth is flat or round. It's, it's not really, that's not what the Bible is there to talk about. Um, what about when you the foundations and the pillars and the ends and the corners and well, yeah. the footstool? And if you look at the Hebrew cosmology, isn't it a flat earth with a firmament over it and water above it and water below it? I've heard people say that, and I don't, I don't actually see the Bible saying that. Now, whether, whether ancient Hebrews saw it that way or not, a flat earth with a big dome over it, I mean, I know the pagans did, and some people say the Hebrews did. I, uh, and maybe they did, but the Bible didn't tell them that. I mean, people who believe lots of things, the Bible doesn't tell them. The Bible does everything you mentioned about the earth having foundations or being God's footstool or, you know, being um, stable, it shall not be moved and so forth. Those things are all in the poetic books, Psalms and stuff like that. And they, they talk about, you know, God forming the dry land like with his hands shaping it like clay out of the water and things like that. I mean, that's not what that's not how Genesis describes it. In other words, the, the poetic books use all kinds of imagery, and we do too. I mean, we, we talk about sun. the sun will rise tomorrow at such and such a time. Well, maybe it will. Maybe the sun's moving. Maybe it doesn't move. Um, but the people who say that the sun's going to rise are usually people who don't believe that the sun is moving. They believe the earth is turning. And so... We don't always talk in the way that's technical. We sometimes use what they call phenomenal language. Phenomenal language is basically just talking about things the way they, they appear from our perspective. Um, so, you know, the, the, you know the, the arguments I've heard for the flat earth are simply not persuasive. And, and it seems to me that most flat, most flat earthers did not begin with science and argue that there's a flat earth, but they began with how they understood the Bible. They thought the Bible teaches a flat earth, and therefore they went looking for the scientific confirmation of that. But the Bible doesn't teach there's a flat earth, so, so it's not a necessary thing. Now, I, I, personally, uh, I personally don't think there's anything at stake in the shape of the earth. So, uh, you know, if the earth was flat, that'd be okay with me. Except I think that by Christians saying the earth is flat, when in fact there's a great number of evidences that have convinced the, all the experts otherwise, it might make Christians look a little bit like we're superstitious and, or that we're just behind the times. And, you know, so, you know, there's nothing wrong with being shamed for Christ, but being shamed for holding a flat earth is not the same thing as being shamed for Christ because Christ didn't teach a flat earth. In fact, Jesus taught that at the moment of his return, some will be, it'll be nighttime for them. Two will be sleeping in one bed at that night, he said. One will be taken and the other left. And two women will be grinding at the mill. That's what they do in the morning chores. And two men will be working out in the field. That's daytime activity. And at that very moment, one will be taken and the other left. And yet, for some, at that moment, it'll be nighttime for some and daytime for others. And I understand the succession of day and night to be caused by uh, the visibility of the sun coming over the horizon of a turning globe. Um, I know flat earth people have explained it different ways, but frankly, if, there's, if the earth is flat like a pizza, then once the sun is visible to any part of it, that light would shine across the whole 
surface, it seems to me. I don't really know how you have night in one place at the same time as day in another. So I, I don't think Jesus taught a flat earth, and I don't think even what he said very well fits with the theory of the flat earth. So, I mean, you're certainly in, entitled to believe that. Anyone can believe whatever they want to. They don't need my blessing. But um, I'm not on the same page about that. I think that uh, the best scientific evidence does support uh, around What about where God says the sun and moon are right in the sky, and we see them right there, and there's video evidence? Again, that's clouds phenomenal. Clouds behind the sun and moon. Pardon? Thick, heavy clouds are recorded on video behind the sun and moon. I've actually recorded clouds behind the moon. Okay. I saw it for I'm myself gonna, okay, and grabbed my camera. Let me just say this. I'm not going to argue about whether there's clouds that are visible behind the sun and the moon. I don't think there are. I haven't seen those videos. Uh, it seems to me if they, if that was true, I think the astronomers would have spotted them too. They have telescopes and things like that, and I think they would have figured it out. I think, hey, wait, if there's clouds, wait, there's clouds. But, you know, the moon is between us and these clouds. Uh, the moon must not be out as far as we thought it was. Uh, yeah, in order to believe in a flat earth, you have to believe in incredible conspiracy theory because there's people who've been in space. There's people who photographed the earth, but you have to believe what well, those photos, those are conspiracy. Those are faked photos. Those have been doctored. You're not supposed, they want you to believe the earth is round, uh, global. Um, and so, so you've got to have everybody in NASA, every airline pilot who's flown around the world, they have to be in on this conspiracy. And we're talking about thousands and thousands of people. And we say, why would they want to? I mean, what's the motive here? Who's making money off this? How, how is there any benefit in, pre, in teaching the world that the Earth is global if we, they secretly know it's really the shape of a pizza? Uh, I can't think of any motivation. And I think, they're, I think they believe what they do about that is because all the evidence points that direction. At least that's how I take it. You can certainly see it differently. I know you do. So thank you for joining us. We need to take a break here. We have another half hour coming up. My name is Steve Gregg. We're on, you're listening to The Narrow Path radio broadcast. We are listener-supported. You can write to us at The Narrow Path, P.O. Box 1730, Temecula, California, 92593. Or go to our website, thenarrowpath.com. I'll be back in 30 seconds, so don't go away. Are you aware of the wide variety of teachings available without charge at the Narrow Path website? In several hundred lectures, Steve Gregg covers every book of the Bible individually and gives separate teachings on approximately 300 important biblical topics. There is no charge for anything at our website. Visit us there and you'll be amazed at all you have been missing. That web address again is www.thenarrowpath.com. Welcome back to the Narrow Path radio broadcast. My name is Steve Gregg, and we're live for another half hour taking your calls. If you have questions about the Bible or the Christian faith, there's a phone number I'll give you right now. You can call in, and we will try to get to your call before we're out of time. The number is 844-484-5737. That's 844-484-5737. Our next caller is um, James, calling from Indianapolis, Indiana. James, welcome to the Narrow Path. Thanks for calling. How are you doing, Steve? Good. 
Uh, I had a question. I've been about a year ago. I was in the book. I think it was in Revelations, but I'd read about the last prophet, and I was wondering if you knew anything about that. Okay, the Bible doesn't ever mention the phrase "the last prophet." Um, there okay. is a there is a prophet mentioned in Deuteronomy 18. Moses said that the Lord your God will raise up a, a prophet like me, uh, and to him you will hearken. And whoever doesn't hearken to him will be cut off from the people. Uh, so there's a, a specific prophet like Moses that was predicted in, in uh, it's in Deuteronomy 18, uh, verse 15, and following. And um, and the Jews were expecting a prophet uh, based on that very thing, a prophet like Moses. That's why when John the Baptist was confronted by the Pharisees, they said, "Are you the Messiah?" He said, "No." They said, "Are you Elijah?" He said, "No." And they said, "Are you the prophet?" And by that, they meant the prophet that Moses referred to. Um, now, some of the rabbis taught that the prophet that would come would be Jeremiah, that he'd be coming back. A lot of most of the Jews believed Elijah would be coming back, but they weren't necessarily thinking that was the prophet. But there is no phrase in the Bible that I know of that says the last prophet. So, uh, that, yeah, there's no what passage. Talking, what I was talking about, a guy asked me about the end days. And I told him at the end days that God was waiting on the last prophet. And I don't even know if that was in the Bible or if I've read it in another book. And that's why I asked. Well, I'll tell you, uh, it's it's not in the Bible. But also, I'd be surprised if it was in any Christian books about the last days. I mean, I've read most most of the positions that people have about the last days. And I've never heard anyone suggest there would be a last prophet. Now, there is such a thing as the two witnesses in Revelation chapter 11, and they are called yeah, prophets. I know yeah, I, I know that part. Okay, okay. Uh, I, that was all I wanted to know. I appreciate you talking to me, though. Okay, James. Thanks for calling. Good talking to you. Uh, Sean from uh, Surrey, British Columbia. Welcome to the Narrow Path. Hi, Steve. Uh, thank you for what you do. Um, can you please shed a little light on the criticism that in council because it was, you know, by Constantine, that uh, that's when the Bible was and, you know, certain books didn't make it. And it can you shed some light on that? You know, your your phone broke up so much or else my, my headphones did that I, I didn't catch many sentences. But I think I got your question anyway. I only got about four or five words, but I you mentioned oh, the council. Sorry about that. You yeah. talked about books being rejected from the Bible, and you talked about a council. I assume you were talking about the Nicene Council. Um, and uh, and are you talking about are you talking about how the books of the New Testament were chosen to be in it? Is that what your question is? Well, that and also like the uh, the Constantine was overseeing that. How like how was the book okay. put together? Okay. Who oversaw it? Okay. Uh, well, first of all, Constantine had uh, nothing to do, as far as I know, with um, establishing which books were in the New Testament canon. It is true that uh, the Council of Nicaea convened at the request of Constantine because there was a controversy in the church, but it wasn't, it wasn't regarding what books belong in the Bible. It was regarding who Jesus was, whether he was a creation of God or whether he was God. And there was a, a, a faction in the church called the Arians who followed a man named Arius who said Jesus was a created being. Uh, and uh, then there were the, the, what we'd call the Catholic or the universal uh, doctrine, uh, which was that uh, of the Trinity, or that Jesus was 
that maybe the Trinity wasn't fully formulated, but, but that Jesus was God and not a creation of God was certainly what was under discussion. And, uh, and the, the people who believed that Jesus is God definitely came out uh, ahead on that, and the Nicene Creed was formed to, uh, to establish that as normative. And, and Constantine did encourage the bishops to get together and sort that out because there was conflict in the church over it, and he thought it would be good for them, everyone to hammer it out and come to one view. And they did. Now, uh, to my knowledge, they had nothing to do with deciding anything about which books go into the New Testament because there were still, after Nicaea, after the Nicene Council, there were still about eight, seven or eight uh, New Testament books that not all the church agreed on belonging. Uh, the, the decision about which books would and which books would not be in the uh, New Testament was was uh, formed over a long period of time. And it wasn't until, say, Nicaea was 325 A.D. Uh, it wasn't until 397 A.D. at the Council of Carthage that the final uh, decisions were made about including books like Revelation and Hebrews and some other books that had been disputed before, Second Peter. Uh, so Constantine, and, and, the, and Constantine was dead by then, uh, so he had nothing to do with any decisions that were ever made about what books belong in the Bible. Now, the, the, the Da Vinci Code and, and a lot of uh, people on the Internet who don't know anything about what they're talking about have sometimes said, well, there were lots of Gospels besides the four Gospels in our Bible. And, and uh, Constantine, you know, there were things he didn't like about the other one, so he burned them all, and, and he picked uh, these four. Uh, that is, uh, the per- if anyone says that to you, just uh, just mark it up. They don't know anything about what they're talking about. Not one thing. Uh, Constantine had nothing to say about which Gospels were accepted and which were not. Again, he didn't come to power until 312 A.D. But before he was born, the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and John, were all recognized as authentic Gospels, and the Gnostic Gospels already had been recognized as forgeries. Uh, the Gospel of Thomas, the Gospel of Philip, the Gospel of Mary, the Gospel of uh, Judas, and others. We call them the Gnostic Gospels, and they are forgeries. They were written in the 2nd and 3rd and maybe 4th centuries, uh, long after the people who who they claim they are written by were dead. And the early church knew that long before Constantine came along. Constantine, again, wasn't didn't have any influence at all on the church until after his conversion in 312, and, uh, and by then, the church already knew which four Gospels were authentic and which ones were fake. And we see this, for example, uh, in uh, Irenaeus. Irenaeus was a, a bishop of uh, Smyrna, I believe it was. And he, um, not Smyrna. No, he was in Lyon, France. Uh, he had lived in Smyrna and under Polycarp. But, uh, no, he was in Lyon. And uh, he in his writings around 170 or 180 A.D., which is probably before Constantine was born, or if Constantine was born, he was a baby at that time, uh, Irenaeus actually mentioned that the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, are the only four that the church recognizes as authentic. Um, around the same time, another guy, a disciple of Tert- uh, Tertullian named Tatian, he put together a a harmony of the four Gospels. And he had the text of the four Gospels side by side in columns, just like you might buy today, a, a harmony of the Gospels like that. But the first one of those was made around 180 A.D. by Tatian. And again, he included only those ones. 
Um, and so uh, it was already clear that those four Gospels were the authentic Gospels. And this was at least, say, 50 years before Constantine, before the Council of Nicaea. And so uh, Nicaea didn't make any decisions about what Gospels belong in there. And as far as the books that were disputed until 397, none of the Gospels were in that category. All four Gospels and Acts and all of Paul's epistles were already recognized long before, long before the rest of the books were. And, of course, uh, also First Peter was accepted from the beginning and First John. Uh, but the books that were questioned, and this was even after Nicaea for another uh, se- another 75 years, uh, b- the book of Revelation, the book of Hebrews, the book of Second and Third John, the book of Jude, um, uh, the book of Second Peter. I think that's the whole list of the ones that were disputed up up until 397 A.D. So uh, how did how did the books get picked? Well, when the books were written, they were written in the first century and preserved by the churches uh, that had access to them. So when Matthew wrote his gospel, he he left it in the hands of the church, and they made copies of it, and they preserved the knowledge of who had written it, and they knew he was an apostle of Christ, so they recognized that as authoritative. Same thing with Mark and Luke and, and John's gospels. They were left in the hands of the first century Christians who preserved a memory of who wrote them. How could they forget? You know, I mean, if you lived in the days of the apostles, uh, or your parents or grandparents did, and they received these books from the hands of these people, uh, how how could you forget who wrote them? Uh, but there were some books, Second Peter would be an example, that had Peter's name on it. But there were also other books that had Peter's name on them, uh, which were forgeries. In, among the Gnostic Gospels, there's a Gospel of Peter, there's an Apocalypse of Peter. And, and many people thought that Second Peter was also a forgery. But, uh, but they accepted First Peter, but they, they had doubts about Second Peter. But eventually, uh, basically by doing the research, they concluded that Second Peter is authentic, and so they put it in. So uh, the main thing about choosing which books belong in the New Testament was, are they apostolic? In other words, did an apostle write them, or at least did the authority of an apostle stand behind them? Mark, for example, was not an apostle, but he traveled with Peter. And a very early church father, around 100 A.D., named Papias, said that Mark was Peter's interpreter, and he wrote, his gospel as a uh, you know a translation of, of Peter's sermons. So even though Mark wrote the uh, second gospel, it is said to be basically the gospel according to Peter, so it was apostolic. Luke, likewise, Luke was not an apostle, but he traveled with Paul for years and years, and uh, and it was considered that you know he and Paul were kind of on the same wavelength about things, and so figured that Paul's authority would stand behind that and authorize that. And, you know, again, the epistles that were not immediately accepted were not immediately accepted because there's some question about whether they really had been written by an apostle or by someone who had apostolic authority. So that's that's the question that was floating around and being disputed for the first 400 years. But uh, in my opinion, they made the right choices. I think I, I think they had information even better than what we have available to know who wrote those gospels. So. And those epistles. So anyway, that's that's how that whole thing came about. But it had nothing to do with the Council of Nicaea. All right, we're going to talk to James from Kentucky. And hey, we have a, a couple of lines open if you're interested. The number to call is 
57, 37. And uh, James from Kentucky, welcome to the Narrow Path. Thanks for calling. Thank you, and God bless you and for taking my call. But my question or comment, however you want to take it, is concerning the age of accountability from God's perspective. Okay. okay. And the, where I get this of all places in the Old Testament, so take it with a grain of salt. But, you know, he instructs Moses uh, in the beginning to number of the children of Israel from 20 years old and upward for war. And then we jump forward in the book of Numbers to 1429, and he he tells that everyone from the age of 20 years old and upward will not enter into the uh, kingdom. So yeah. that's my question or comment. If you'd like to build on that, I'd thank you. And I'll hang up and take your comment. All right. Thanks for your call. Uh, well, first of all, uh, and this came up, I think, on the on the recorded program that played yesterday, I think this this subject came up. Um, the age of accountability refers to an age that a child reaches at which God counts them to be responsible for their actions. Obviously, a baby is not responsible for his actions, um, and, and, and a little a toddler is, can't be very held responsible for you know, believing in God or not because they don't know anything. But a child reaches a certain age where they are expected to have knowledge of good and evil at a level that they can be responsible for their actions morally. And such an age is referred to, for example, in Isaiah chapter 7 and verse 16, where it talks about a baby would be born. And it said, before he shall have knowledge to choose the good and refuse the evil, such and such events will happen. So it talks about the birth of a baby, and it talks about a period of time before that child knows to choose good and refuse evil. That, that suggests an age of accountability. Now, you mentioned that the the Israelites who were uh, under 20 years old um, at the time that the Israelites rebelled were not held responsible for the rebellion of the nation, and God allowed them to go into the promised land, which uh, he did not allow the others to do. And uh, Moses specifically, in Deuteronomy chapter 1, mentions that those people, it says they, they were not held responsible because they didn't know good from evil. And, of course, the group he's talking about were 20 years old and younger. Now, we might say, well, I don't know what the age of accountability is, and the Bible doesn't really address it that uh, unmistakably. But um, And it's not important for us to know. It's important for God to know, because God's the one who's going to judge, and therefore he knows who can be held accountable and who cannot. But I would just say that um, 20 years old seems a little old to me. Uh, the Jews at a later time in history... Uh, seem to look at age 13 as a time when uh, children now come to a point of adult responsibility and accountability to the law. That's why the bar mitzvah takes place at that age. Um, uh, but for, I mean, you'd think that even before age 13, a child knows good from evil. But how much do they know of it in terms of uh, how much is their brain developed? How much, how much are they really... Uh, you know, so attuned with moral reality that God holds them responsible. But God does never tell us that. All we can really say is that there are people who are young enough, or maybe even if they're not young, they might be disabled, mentally disabled in some ways, so that, you know, they, they really don't know uh, good from evil at, at this point. And, and God knows. God knows that they're in that state. And obviously he calibrates judgment according to how much somebody knows or doesn't know. 
Uh, remember, Jesus said in, in the book of Luke that that master who knew his, uh, actually that servant who knew his master's will, but did not prepare himself and did not do his master's will, will be beaten with many stripes. But that servant who did not know his master's will, but did things worthy of stripes, will be beaten with few stripes. He's talking about the God, you know, calibrating judgment according to how much was known, how much a person is responsible for and, and knew things. Um, so we can we can rest in this, that God knows uh, that not everyone deserves the same judgment, even for the same actions, because some people simply don't know what they're doing. Even Jesus said, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Uh, and, of course, they, he's not saying they hadn't reached the age of accountability, but he meant, you know, this mitigates their guilt somewhat if they have no clue what they're really involved with here. And so there's no one who can judge as justly as God because there's no one who knows the thoughts and intents of everyone's heart like he does. And so actually Paul tells us that very thing about why we can't judge others uh, ultimately, that is we can't, we can't make decisions about, you know, if, if we know how they're going to be judged by God because we don't know them like God does. We don't know as many things as God does. And, God, and Paul actually says this, in uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 4, he said, um, let me see if I'm in the right place. Yeah, it says verse 5, 1 Corinthians 4, 5, he says, Therefore judge nothing before the time until the Lord comes, who will both bring to light the hidden things of darkness and reveal the counsels of the hearts. Then each one's praise will come from God. That is to say, we might be able to judge people uh, a certain way by just looking at their actions and saying oh, they're doing the wrong thing, so they're probably going to hell. But Paul says, don't judge anyone about that prematurely, because until Jesus comes, then he's going to make known the secret counsels of the hearts. And then everyone will receive their praise from God. It's, they, don't, they don't need praise from you. Uh, they don't need your approval. They need his. And God, fortunately, knows what approval you know, should be given and what should not, because he knows all the secret things including whether they've reached an age of accountability or not. So the one thing we do know uh, is the Bible never really makes much of an issue of this matter. And uh, the only thing it would really affect, I think, would be how we see how is someone going to be judged. Let's say if they die before they hear about Christ or before, they, before they're old enough to understand the gospel. Well, God will judge justly and... Uh, we do know this, he's a more merciful judge than any other judge who's ever lived because he, he's so unwilling that any should be condemned that he was willing to come and die to prevent that. But, of course, uh, people will be condemned if they reject him, and he alone knows at what stage they are morally sophisticated enough to know what it means to reject him or accept him. So I, I would leave all that information, all that knowledge of that information in, in God's hands because we aren't really given uh, much, uh, specifically on it. All right, our next caller is Ronald, calling from Georgia. Ronald, welcome to the Narrow Path. Hi, Steve. Hi. I just have a quick question. I apologize in advance if you've answered this before. <laughs> but um, 2 Kings chapter 19, verse 35, it talks about the angel of the Lord killed like 185,000 people. Uh-huh. Um, do we know how he did that or uh, no, we don't. I mean, uh, he could have just taken their breath from them while they they, they died in their sleep. So, uh, 
there's no reason to think that he had to come and decapitate them or anything like that. I mean, they, they were just dead in the morning. So, um, mm-hmm. and, and the angel of the Lord, we have to remember, is really God's agent acting in God's authority. And, and God can take the breath away from anyone he wants to. It doesn't tell us how they died. It just tells us they died at the hand of the angel of the Lord. Um, and, again, it, it's, it, it happened while they were asleep. So, I mean, that's a rather merciful way for God to do it. Uh, lots of people mm-hmm. got judged by God in their when they were awake, and that's a lot harder sometimes. But uh, no, right. we don't have the cause of death has not been determined. Okay. I right, say, so well, thank you so much. God bless you. Okay, Ronald. Thanks for your call. Uh, Sabrina from California, welcome. Hi, Steve. Hi. Thank you for taking my call. First time uh-huh. caller. Um, and also, I apologize if you, you. I'm sure you've answered this question in the past, but I have my husband here with me and we're both on the line and he is he was raised jehovah's witness doesn't believe in the trinity and i've tried to explain it to him Mm -hmm. and a couple of different people have as well and i wanted to know if maybe you could since you have a pretty good way of explaining um the trinity to my husband (laughs) well i'll tell you this i may be able to say something but we're only about five minutes and this is something that the, the the nicene council debated on for weeks um, it's obviously not a not something that could be easily summarized uh, convincingly. Uh, I will say this, though. I have an entire lecture on the Trinity that you can listen to for free from our website at the narrow okay. path at the narrow path dot com. And I will do that. Okay. Uh, there's a tab. There's a tab that says topical lectures. And uh, under that, you'll find a series called Knowing God. Now, if you click on that, it opens up the series and you can see there's one on the Trinity there. And if you want to, there's another one on the deity of Christ. And those are the kinds of things that somebody uh, who who perhaps is leaning toward the Jehovah's Witness way of looking at things, uh, these lectures address that much more thoroughly than I can here. That's they're probably well, they're over an hour each. So uh, obviously, in our time, I can't do very much. The, the Trinity doctrine is that there are three centers of consciousness, usually traditionally said persons in God, that God, uh, the, you know, it came to be said there's three persons in one God. And um, we don't really know that persons is the right word, but probably it's good. I mean, the Bible doesn't use that term. What the Bible does say is there's only one God. It says that very emphatically and many times. And yet it also says that the Father is God. It tells us that the Son is God, and it tells us that the Holy Spirit is God. All those things are affirmed in Scripture. And if all three of them are God, and there's only one God, then in some sense those three are one. But in some sense they're distinct, too, because Jesus talked about his Father as distinct from himself. He said, I bear witness to myself, and my Father is a second witness who bears witness to me. And the witness of two is true. Now, obviously saying my Father are different. He even said in John 14, my Father is greater than I am. And the, the church has always recognized that the Father and Jesus have distinction. And, and much of the time, the church has recognized that the Holy Spirit also is distinct from them. Jesus said, I'm going to send you another paracletos, another comforter. Now, he was the comforter that was with them. He's going away and going to send you another one. And that's the Holy Spirit. Not the same one. It's a different one. But uh, so the Spirit and Jesus and the Father have distinction from each other. And yet they also have, they identify as one in a certain sense. Now, how does that work? You want an explanation? I can't explain it, but I will say that if someone says it doesn't make sense that God could be one and three, well, you're right. 
unless we're saying that he's one in a certain sense and he's three in a different sense. And the easiest illustration I give of that is a husband and wife, uh, because a husband and wife are one flesh. In one sense, they are. In a different sense, they're two different people. It's entirely possible to say that two people are distinct from each other in a certain sense, but they are one in another sense. And, uh, you know, what does one flesh mean when it's talking about couples? I'm not even sure. I mean, that's kind of a mysterious thing in itself. What's it mean? Uh, it speaks of a sexual union and obviously something beyond just having sex. It, it speaks of some joining in one uh, flesh. Uh, it's a mysterious thing. In fact, Paul himself said that. He quotes in Ephesians 5. He says, it is written, uh, you know, a man shall leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. He says, this is a great mystery. But he says, I speak of Christ and the church. So the oneness of Christ and the church is also illustrated here. But the point I'm making is the church and Christ are different from each other, but they're also one with each other. A husband and wife are different individuals, but they're also, in another sense, one. They're not one in the same sense that they're two, and because that would be nonsensical. If I said God is, in a certain sense, one, and in the same sense, he's three, well, then I just contradicted myself. But if I say God is true, and, uh, and, and truly one God, in a, in a very important sense, he's only one God. But in a different sense, he's three. And, uh, well, then I haven't said something that doesn't make sense, although I haven't really explained much either. And the explaining part is where it gets difficult because the Bible doesn't explain it, but it certainly affirms it. So uh, the Christian has to decide, am I going to just believe what God said, thinking maybe this could be above my pay grade? This could be something that he understands that I don't. There are a few things in that category. There, there's a few things, just a few, that I don't understand, but I think God does. And uh, that must be one of them, because I don't fully understand it. But he does, and he told me. He said it's true. Now, I can either say, God, until you can explain it in terms I can understand, I'm not going to believe it. But Jehovah's Witnesses sometimes say that. They say, God wouldn't require me to believe something I don't understand. Well, but there's lots of things we don't understand that we're, we believe. I mean, for example, we believe God had no beginning. We believe God has always existed. Do you understand that? I don't. I don't think anyone does. We have no frame of reference for that. So there are things about God we can't understand, but that doesn't mean he hasn't told us enough to affirm certain things to be true, because affirming them is the only way to do justice to the whole of the Bible. Uh, if, we, if we take any other position, we have to kind of ignore a, a whole group of scriptures. So there are scriptures that suggest that the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are different. 